We're going to begin our second session tonight, which is Born to Live Forever. And we want to talk tonight about why did Jesus come? Why was it necessary for him to come? We talked about, in the last program, we wanted to know, could we know for sure who Jesus was and that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be? But we want to know, why did he need to come? Why did he need to die on the cross? And what is that all about? And so tonight in our second session, Born to Live Forever, there's going to be kind of some bad news and then some good news. Right? So it's going to be one of those bad news, good news stories. You ever heard those bad news, good news, bad news jokes? There was a guy who went to his doctor and he had a bit of a pain in his back or whatever and he went and had some tests done and then he sort of felt a little bit better and so he didn't sort of make any urgency to go back and get the results of these tests but eventually a couple of months later he goes back to see the doctor and the doctor says to him well I have some good news and some bad news and the man says well uh, give me the good news and he says well the good news is you have four weeks left to live and the guy goes four weeks left to live that's the good news What's the bad news? He said, well, I should have told you a month ago. <laughs> so that's a bit of a good news, bad news story. But this, this has a good news, bad news story attached. And we probably will look at the bad news first. But then there's some extraordinarily good news. I was uh, intrigued by this newspaper uh, cover This is back in 2012, and you can see a baby has just been born there, and it says, Saving Baby Faith. I thought, that's a good headline, I want to use that. Saving Baby Faith. And it says on the cover there, Faith, there's a little girl that was born, is only six days old, but has a drug habit to kick. Read Ruth Lampard's extraordinary story of the battle to save a tiny girl born addicted to drugs. So here we had this little girl and the medical staff were working day and night to do all that they could to try and preserve this baby girl's life because she had been born addicted to drugs because of the choice of her parents. In other words, they had been addicted to drugs and they had passed that on to their baby girl and so this baby girl was born addicted to drugs through no fault of her own, right? In a way, this story helps to illustrate the human condition because the Bible tells us that all of us born on planet Earth have been born with a condition, whether we like it or not. We have been born with a condition as a result of the choice of our parents a long time ago. Notice what the Bible says here. In the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, it says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, when Adam and Eve chose to 
turn away from God and to pursue a path away from God, they sinned against God and death came into the world. Adam and Eve eventually died. And they passed on that sinful nature to every one of us. And so we think that it's normal to be born, live a while, and then eventually die. We think that's normal. That's not how God intended it. That is a consequence of the rebellion that all of us have ended up being involved in. We ask this question, what is sin? And the Bible gives us a definite answer. But I mentioned a few nights ago, you remember we talked about um, NRL football, right? And we said that if you commit a serious foul in a game of rugby, you get sent where? You get sent to the sin bin, right? You get sent to the sin bin in a game of rugby. If you commit a serious breach of the rules, you get sent from the field, you get sent to the sin bin. And we know that. So that's what it is. It's a a breach of the rules. It's a rebellion against the rules or the laws upon which the universe runs. The Bible tells us in 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. It's the breaking of a law. Okay? That's what sin is. Well, how many have sinned? Bible tells us very clearly, well, it says here, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Number um, Romans 3, 10 to 12, Paul puts it like this. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Every one of us has been infected by this tendency towards sin, this sinful nature, right? Now, we're not born with a record of guilt, of course, because we haven't done anything. But we're born with a bent, a tendency, a a leaning towards rebellion. Maybe some of you have had toddlers. We had our, uh, our son is 20 years of age, but I remember he, he was born at 5.37 in the morning and uh, my sweet wife delivered him and then they placed him in my hands and I remember that day as one of the proudest days of my life. He was a beautiful boy, still is. But it didn't take too long before he was rebelling against my commands, <laughs> you know? And if you've ever had a toddler... Maybe you recognise that, that you don't have to teach them to rebel, do you? You don't have to teach them how to say no. You don't have to teach them how to say, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. And so the Bible tells us that we all have this. The Bible says this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. And I mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. Why is the wages of sin death? Why is that such a drastic penalty for disregarding one of God's instructions? We remember back in the Garden of Eden how Adam and Eve were told that they could eat of every tree of the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were 
with the forbidden to eat of that tree, but they could eat of any other tree. But then Eve and then Adam got seduced by the serpent who was the devil in disguise and they ate from the forbidden tree and they were cast out from the garden. The wages of sin is death because, as we mentioned before, God alone is the only source of life in the universe. And when we walk away from God, we walk away from life. And God is trying to get us to understand, don't separate from me. Don't disconnect from me. I'm the source of your life. You've all got a smartphone, right? My smartphone, it's in my bag somewhere. It's probably got about 80% on, because I sort of charged it up a little earlier. So it's probably got 80% battery life, right? But tomorrow it'll have less and the next day less and it will die and never live again unless it's connected to a power source. In a way, our lives are like that. Our lives are going to run out of life. And we need to be connected to that power source. Now, just being connected doesn't give you life. You've got to wait for that switch to be thrown and then the power comes through. But if that switch is thrown and you're not connected to the power, your phone will never live again, right? It's never going to live again unless you're connected to the power and throw the switch. And so what God is trying to say, the wages of sin is death, is because when we separate from the only source of life, the only alternative is death. Adam and Eve separated from God on that day. They didn't die that day, just as your phone's not dead yet. But eventually, when it's separated from the source of life, it will not live on its own. We don't have life in and of ourselves. It's borrowed from a greater source. We read this before in our previous presentation. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. He's the source of our life. No one comes to me, to the Father, except through me. Here's another one. By the way, this teaching in this Bible verse I'm going to share with you revolutionized what I understood about Jesus. Notice what it says here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here, Jesus is referred to as the Word because later in the passage it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the Word, which is God, it tells us here, became a man. It's just the most incredible story. It's the kind of thing you might only read in science fiction, except the Bible got there long before science fiction. right? God chose to become a human being and come down here and live amongst us. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the principal designer. He's the creator of our world. That's what the Bible's telling us. And the final line here, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So it's in Jesus that we have life. That's why we need to be connected to him. Because without him, this life is going to run out. We need him in our lives. The Bible tells us very clearly in Isaiah 59 verse 2, 
But your iniquities, that's just another name for sin, your sins, your iniquities have separated you from God. That's what happened in the garden. That's what happens to us every time we make a step away from God. We're separating ourselves from God. And God says, I don't want you to separate from me. The Bible describes God as our heavenly Father. He regards us as his children. He wants his children to come to him. He doesn't want his children to run from him. But sin separates. Your iniquities have separated you from God. That's the bad news. The good news is that God did something about it. Even though we had walked away from him, he chose to approach us. Even the story in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve disobey God. They choose to believe the serpent instead of the word of God. But God comes looking for them. And God chose to do something about it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29... John the Baptist, it says, The next day John, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we mentioned before, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, the the children of Israel, when they had committed a sin, in fact you can take this all the way back to the Garden of Eden, because when Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked, they realised they were naked, and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Maybe you've heard that story. But they were barely covered at all. They tried to cover themselves. God said, no, I will make skins. I will make coats of skins for you. Now, if you make a coat of somebody's skin, you have to take that skin from somebody, right? There had to be a sacrifice provided for the skin to be put on them. Then we read in chapter 4 of Genesis how Cain and Abel bought offerings to God and Abel bought a sacrifice to God. And this sacrificial system had gone on all the way from the Garden of Eden all the way through and they would, they would confess their sins on an animal such as a lamb. They would transfer the sin from the person to the lamb and then that lamb would be sacrificed to pay the price of their sin. The wages of sin is death. And that lamb would pay the price. Here John the Baptist is saying of Jesus... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was in fact the Lamb of God. He's the one to which all those sacrifices pointed to. He was the innocent Lamb who came and died in our place. In order for God to be able to make reconciliation. You know, reconciliation is a word we sometimes hear in here in Australia about bringing two parties together. Two parties have not understood each other, are separated because of uh, antagonism or enmity and reconciliation is designed to bring them back together. In the Bible it says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In other words, God chose to send Jesus into the world to bring back the children 
and to close the gap between us and God. It's kind of like there's heaven and here's earth and Jesus kind of bridges that gap. He takes hold of the hand of humanity and he takes hold of the hand of God and he is the mediator between men and God. He's like the bridge. In fact, the Bible calls Jesus, refers to Jesus as Jacob's ladder. He's the way that we get from earth to heaven. We get up through Jesus. He is the one. And uh, of course, he can fulfill that role perfectly because Jesus was all God, but he was also all man. So he can represent God to us, but he can represent us to God. He is the perfect mediator and he came. Now you might be thinking, how is it possible that Jesus could die on the cross for our sins and and die for the sins of the whole world? That's a lot. But you see, the Bible even talks about this. He says, you know, maybe even one one man might even dare to die for another man. Maybe you love someone so much that if they were in the, in the prison and they were facing the death penalty, that you might approach the authorities and say, because of my love for this person, I'd like to swap places. Will you take my life instead of taking this other person's life? Maybe you would do that for somebody you really loved. But how would it be possible for one person to take the place of millions? And it's only possible because in Jesus is not just a human life, but eternal life. So if Jesus credits you, let's suppose Jesus, the Bible says, he is life. He has everlasting life. And he gives you everlasting life. How much has he got left? Everlasting life, right? Because he has everlasting life. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. So he can give everlasting life to you and everlasting life to you and everlasting life to you and still have everlasting life because life everlasting is everlasting life. Does that make sense? He is an eternal being. And he chose to come and die the death that we, have, that we should die in order to give us the life that he has for us. He paid that price. The Bible says it this way in John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I have an interesting history with this particular Bible verse. You notice here the reference John 3.16. I had no idea what what the reference John 3.16 meant until I became a Christian. When I was out in the world as an atheist... I remember I was watching the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. I used to watch a lot of sport on TV and I was watching the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984 and I remember somebody had a white sheet, a banner, and on it with black letters it just said John 3.16. And I had no idea what that meant. And I said, I wonder what that means. John 3.16. And uh, I thought, well, maybe the guy's named John, and 316, maybe that's, the, that's his birthday or something, you know, March the 16th. I don't know. What does that mean? Two years later, I'm watching the World Cup. It was on in Mexico. And then I see the banner again, John 316, at the World Cup. 
Somebody had hung a banner. And I'm saying, there's that guy John again. I'm thinking the guy's named John, and I don't know what the 316 is, but it's like, you know, one of those banners that says, hello, mum. And I thought, hey, this guy must get around. So he was in California, in Los Angeles, and now he's in Mexico at the World Cup. He must like his sport, I guess. A couple of years later, I'm watching the Super Bowl. We'd gone to a Super Bowl party in the UK. The Super Bowl's on sort of in the afternoon, evening in the, in the States, but it's on at night time in, in England because of the time difference. And so we went to a Super Bowl party. And we're watching the Super Bowl, and I see a guy with a banner, John 3.16, at the Super Bowl. I'm saying, yeah, there he is again. I think it's the same guy. It's only later when I'm in a Bible study and somebody's teaching the Bible and they say, let's turn to John 3.16. And I thought, ha, what about that? And I was shocked because suddenly I understood what it meant and it means for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says whoever believes in him, it doesn't matter if you're short or or tall, it doesn't matter if you're fat or thin, it doesn't matter if you're old or young, male or female, slave or free, it doesn't matter what nationality you are. The Bible says whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Some people believe, they think that their sins are too bad for God to forgive. I could share, I won't, I could share some of the things that I went through before I was a Christian. You wouldn't probably give me the time of day if I told you what those things were. But the only reason I can stand before you and talk about God is because Jesus has forgiven me. I stand guiltless, not because I am guiltless, but because God has forgiven the guilt that I had. He has forgiven my sins. And you might think, well, you don't know. I've gone too deep, too far, too often. And God can't possibly forgive my sin. Don't underestimate God's ability to forgive your sin. If God, if Jesus, if God in Christ can forgive the sins of the whole world, do you think he can carry yours? It's good to remember that. For God so loved the world... If he can carry the sins of the whole world, he can carry yours. Don't ever think that you've gone too far, you've done too much, you've drifted away too long for God not to be able to forgive your sins. God can forgive and through Christ he is willing to do that. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's really about do you believe him? Do you trust him? A few years ago I had the uh, opportunity to go to Niagara Falls and you know I was staying in a, a hotel not far from the falls and you can actually hear them roaring all through the night. But um, some decades ago, a century or so ago, there was a guy called Charles Blondin and he was a tightrope walker and he decided he was going to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. How crazy is that, Right. But he's going to do that and they put the line across and uh, he made it across with his pole and then I uh, think uh, he sort of, I think he rode a bicycle across or something, something crazy like that and then I think he did it backwards and he sat down on the rope and then he got up and, 
And then he, he got this wheelbarrow. And uh, there were thousands of people on the banks on either side. You know, there's the Canadian side and the American side. And there's thousands of people there watching this guy do his tightrope walking. And he's, he's got this wheelbarrow. And the reporters are there asking, say, what do you think? Do you think he can make it across with the wheelbarrow? And the people are saying, yeah, I believe he can. Absolutely, he can do it. And the reporter says, would you like to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> and fewer people were enthused about that. But you see, it's one thing to say, yeah, I believe Jesus can make it across from here to heaven. But it's another thing altogether to say, I'm going to place my life in his hands. We have to trust him. He's the only way. The Bible says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He's the only way that we're going to get from here to eternity. You realise that Jesus is not your best hope of everlasting life? He's your only hope. He's not your best hope. He is your only hope of everlasting life. The Bible says this in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You don't want one leg in the wheelbarrow and the other one out. <laughs> right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. We have to put our trust in the Lord and he will see us safely too sure. You know, Jesus promised, he says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. You know, Jesus promised that we would have abundant life in this life. I can assure you that my life is more abundant in the last 25 years than it was for the first 25 years. My life is better with Jesus than it ever was without. But of course, he also offers everlasting life. You know, uh, if you drive, you know that legally you are required to have car insurance, right? You have to have it just in case you bump into somebody else's property and you have to pay for it, okay? So we all have car insurance. If we have a car, we have car insurance just in case we stack the car, right? Might not happen. We hope it doesn't. But we have car insurance just in case. If you have a home, you have house insurance or maybe you have contents insurance, right? Hope it doesn't happen, but the house might burn down. So you have insurance just in case the house burns down. Might not happen, probably won't happen, but you have the insurance anyway. You and I, we're on this planet alive today, but we don't know how long we've got. And at some point, that life will come to an end, right? Not maybe, but it will. Doesn't it make sense to investigate whether there is actually life insurance? Real life insurance, right? Not the kind that when you die, somebody else gets paid. But real life assurance that when you die, you are assured that because of God in Christ... You will live again. There is a guarantee of life again. There is a resurrection. It makes sense to me. If we've got car insurance and house insurance and they're just a maybe, this is a definite. We need to have that life insurance. 
Jesus describes him like a sickness. And uh, that's why I used that opening illustration with the little baby girl. And I really think that the drug addiction thing is probably a a good um, illustration because whilst we're born and, 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 and that sort of affects us, the reality is we can continue that addiction, right? We, continue to, we could continue to make that addiction worse. But Jesus says this. They were complaining because Jesus was spending time with tax collectors and sinners. and Yeah, they had tax collectors back then too. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus said, If you're well, you don't need a doctor, but if you're sick, you do. And the reality is the Bible says we're all sick with this sickness of sin. Now that may seem like bad news to you. You know, Most people don't want to hear that we're sinners, right? But the reality is if the doctor doesn't tell you what's wrong with you, how can he give you the solution? You know, if you're terminally ill and you think, I'm not going to go to the doctor because he's going to give me bad news... How do you know he might have a solution? He might have some treatment, right? The more you avoid going to the doctor, the more you avoid getting the solution to your problem. And what Jesus is saying is that we all have a terminal illness. God did not invent human beings to die. He wanted them to live forever. But because of sin, we do die. And he is the great physician. He's offering us a way out. And he has come to call sinners to repentance. You know, it's a bit like my son, he works in IT, that's information technology. And he can do things on computers that I only dream about, right? Um, If my computer goes seriously wrong, I have to call somebody else because I have no idea. I have to call in a specialist. I have to call in the son. And then the son can fix it. And really, it's like we have a computer virus and we need a specialist to deal with that. And that specialist is Jesus. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But the good news is the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's called a gift. It's called the gift of God. Why? Because it's freely available to you and I. We can't buy it. It's not, it's not for sale at Coles or Woolies. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace, right? You might think sometimes, well, you know, this person, they deserve you know, salvation, but that person, they don't deserve it. The reality is we, none of us deserve it. That's why it's called grace. The Bible says this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Salvation, we don't deserve it. You can't earn it, and you can't buy it. It is a gift that God freely offers us, offers to us simply because he loves us. God loves humanity. He's not content. You know, back in the Garden of Eden when we made that choice, God could easily have said, you made your bed, you lie in it. I gave you the instruction. I said, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. I gave you that instruction, very plain, very clear. You chose to leave. 
That's it. He would have been fully justified in doing that, by the way. But God, the Bible says God is love. And God has extended grace to us because he loves us. He wants to bring us home. He doesn't want to keep the the children out. He wants to bring us home. And uh, we need to be rescued and God is that rescuer. I mentioned before, some people think, surely I am beyond God's forgiveness. But don't underestimate what God can do to redeem you. By the way, there are some extraordinary stories in the Bible of God's grace. Of people who have known God's will and deliberately defied God and gone against him for decades and God brings them back and restores them because they repent and he forgives them. It's amazing. That's why they call it amazing grace. You know, it reminds me of a story. There was a, a preacher, actually. He was driving along a country road and it was nighttime and it was raining and it was raining quite heavily. He's got the wipers going and he's driving. And he's coming around this bend and then he sees this long-haired guy dancing around in the middle of the road and he's thinking, what, what, what's that guy doing? And as he gets closer, he notices the guy's waving at him in the middle of the road. And, and the preacher's thinking, this, this guy looks like a madman. I, I definitely don't want to catch up with him. I've got to, get, I've got to try and get around this guy. And he's dancing around and, and the, the preacher's thinking, well, I'm going to move over to the other side of the road, but then he moves over to the other side of the road and he goes back to the other side of the road and the guy goes back and he's thinking, I'm going to swerve at the end and try and get round him. But this guy throws himself in front of the car and the, the, the preacher just slams on his brakes and skids to a halt just in front of this guy. And the preacher nervously kind of gets out of the car and says, what do you think you're doing? And the guy gets up and he says, the bridge is out. The bridge is out. I've just seen vehicle after vehicle careen over the ravine because the bridge is out and I couldn't stand to see anybody else go over the ravine. In a way, Jesus is like that madman in the middle of the road. He stands as an obstacle to our own destruction. Jesus is taking the risk to look like he's crazy. He's putting his reputation on the line. He's saying, you might think I'm mad, but I'm going to do everything I can to save you. Because I care less for my reputation than I do about you. And God is willing to put himself on the cross. And people look at Jesus and they say, is that your God? How how can you believe in him? What kind of a God is that? Where's the power? And the power is in his love for you and I. Jesus went to the cross. In spite of his reputation of what people might think of him, He went to the cross to die for you and I. The Bible says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not die for us because we went to him begging, saying, Lord, please save us. We didn't want to know him. But he came to us to die for us even while we were still sinners. Such is his love 
for us. And that's why the song says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I sometimes can't hardly believe that God was willing to forgive me. Uh, I had just chosen to disregard. I I wasn't interested in him. But he made his approach to me and gave me the assurance that he loved me and he wanted me to to save me. And I'll serve him every day because of it. Ecclesiastes 3.11, the Bible tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its time and he also has put eternity in their hearts. Every human being, I believe, has in their heart a desire for more than this. Right? God has placed in the hearts of human beings a desire for more than this. We kind of think, is this all there is? There must be more. There is more. God has planned and prepared more for us. He's put that desire for eternity in our hearts because he wants us to seek him. You know, the Bible, it's like this. We have this emptiness in our hearts and we are trying to fill it with everything we can, all sorts of different things. We get addicted to all sorts of stuff. We get addicted to drugs and food and gambling and sex and shopping and TV and workaholism. We try to fill that gap of, we feel inadequate, we feel incomplete. But only God can fill that gap. Only God can fill that gap. And he can take those other things away from us. Somebody came to Jesus at night time. It was a An older man, he was one of the religious rulers. He had a very prominent position in Jerusalem. But he wanted to talk to Jesus and he came to Jesus at night time because he kind of, he wasn't sure he wanted everybody to know that he was looking for Jesus. And he came to Jesus and started chatting with him and Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You remember we opened with that illustration of that girl born addicted to drugs? That's us. We were born with a sinful nature. The Bible says we must be born again. What does that mean, being born again? In fact, the, the man that Jesus said those words to, he says, what does that mean? Can I enter my mother's womb again and get born again? What, what does that mean? And Jesus says you must be born of water and born from the Spirit, born from above. And when a baby is born, they are dependent on their parent. They are completely trusting in that parent. And they are ever learning. They receive from that parent what the parent gives them in order to grow. And they're completely dependent. And that's what God wants us to be. You know, Jesus actually said one time, unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom. What does that mean? It means for us to become dependent on God, trusting in God, and as we'll do that, we will grow. You know, when we come to Christ for the first time, we're born again, and God will provide through the word, through prayer, through fellowship with other believers, 
God will provide what we need to grow. Because we need to learn how to walk. Little babies, right? They're not born walking. They need to learn how to walk. And we need to learn how to walk. And um, this is important that there is growth in our Christian lives. That's what God intended. If you're still bottle feeding a 10-year-old, there's a problem, right? Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, we talked before last night about the second coming of Christ and some wonder, why hasn't the Lord come back again? Doesn't he care? Why hasn't God returned? Why hasn't Jesus returned? The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. That's the promise to return. As some count slackness, but he is long-suffering. Other versions say he is patient toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason Jesus hasn't come yet, he's waiting. He's waiting for his children to come home. Because when Jesus returns, that's it, game over. And he's waiting for us to turn to him and repent that we may not perish. By the word, that word repentance, repentance means to, well it is a sorrow for sin and a turning away from sin. Some people believe in a very shallow, very cheap form of the gospel. And they just say, well, Lord, I accept the Lord Jesus Christ, thanks very much. And they continue to live lives of rebellion. God is calling us to repentance. That is a sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. Some people are only sorrow for sin because they got caught. Right? I remember Shane Warne. He uh, had... uh, been, while he was you know, still playing for the Australian cricket team, he had been uh, found guilty of gambling on the cricket that he was playing professionally. And that was against the rules. And Shane when I saw the interview, he said to the um, interviewer, he said, the only mistake I made, I got caught. That's not repentance, right? Repentance is a sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. And <clears throat> I don't know where you are with the Lord, but if you feel the need to repent and to confess and to come to Christ, I want to make a suggestion to you. Take a sheet of paper on your own. Don't email it to anybody. Take a sheet of paper and write down the sins that come to mind. Pray to God and say, Lord, show me my sins. The Bible says, show me any wicked way in me. And you may not remember all the sins. I can't remember all the sins that I've committed, right? But I have been a liar. So I'd write down liar. Have you stolen something? Write down thief. All of you? Gossip. Not enough laughter there. (laughs) Impure thoughts. Whatever it may be. Adultery. Write the list. And then pray, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. And then burn the list. Burn the list. The more thorough your repentance, the more powerful will be your Christian experience. Sometimes we can be very flippant with God and just say, oh yeah, he'll forgive. 
Sometimes we think that God's willingness to forgive must mean that sin can't be very serious. Because God is so willing to forgive us that sin can't be a big deal. It is a big deal. It sent Jesus to the cross. So repentance is important. The Bible says in Acts 3.19, it says, Repent therefore, be com- Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent therefore and be converted. What is conversion? Conversion simply is you are running from God, but now you've turned around and you're walking with God. Conversion really is a a U-turn. It's a turning around. We were once running from God, now we are walking with God. And this is a beautiful promise of the Bible. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible does not say if God's in a good mood. It doesn't say if you've been good this week. It says if we confess, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from a little bit of unrighteousness. Oh no, that's not what it says. Some unrighteousness. Most of the unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. The if is with us. Will we confess? Are we too proud? Some people will not come to Christ because they will not, they will not climb down from their pride. Do not allow your pride to stand in the way of your salvation. If we confess, the Bible says, if we confess our sins to God, not to me, not to some other man, Not to some other woman. You confess to God through Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I cannot begin to tell you how it feels to get up off your knees knowing you're clean. That you can stand before God and man guiltless because God has cleansed you. It is a wonderful feeling. I recommend it. (laughs) Confess your sins to God, repent, and he will forgive. God has promised. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, in Luke 23, 34, Jesus is on the cross, he's dying for the sins of the whole world, and he says these incredible words. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Without God in our lives, as human beings, pretty much we don't know what we're doing. If it's true, and it is, if it's true that we were made for a relationship with God, we we were created to be in relationship with God, then when we are apart from him, we don't know what we're doing. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He thought of us when he was on the cross. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to give, forgive, and abundance in mercy, abundance in mercy to all those who call upon you. God is ready and waiting to forgive. He is a merciful God. Come to him and seek forgiveness. You know, and then 
that should change us. When we have received God's grace, that should change us. And we should pass on that forgiveness to others. The Bible says in Ephesians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, when God comes into our lives and forgives us and we're filled with his grace, we should be willing and able to be able to forgive others who have wronged us. Because we have wronged God, but God is willing to forgive us. And there is a transformative experience. 1 John 5, 11 to 13. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son is life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you know you have eternal life tonight? Do you realise you do not have to leave this room tonight without knowing that you have eternal life in Christ Jesus? You can go home tonight if you confess your sins and you ask God to bless you. We're going to say a prayer at the end of this session. But if you've given your sins to Christ... You can leave this room tonight knowing you have eternal life because of Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. The Bible says here, he who has the sin has life. Sorry, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son has life. Jesus is about to return. We saw the signs of the times when we were reviewing those last night. Jesus Christ is about to return to this planet. And when he does, either you will have the son and have life, or you won't have the son and you won't have life. It's going to be that simple. And God is pleading with us to take his offer of salvation while it is available now. Deuteronomy chapter 30, 19, it says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. God is placing a very simple choice before us. It's life or death. It really is that important. We talk about these meetings being important. We hope you'll continue to come to the series. Bring others with you. These are life and death meetings. Not because I'm talking, but because of the message from the Bible. God has presented life and death. Romans 5.19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, that was Adam, many were made sinners... So also by one man's obedience, that's Christ, many will be made righteous. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins and rose again to give us the guarantee of everlasting life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When we become Christians, when we follow Christ, the things we loved we now hate and the things we hated we now love. There is a conversion that takes place in the heart if we'll surrender, if we'll confess. Jesus is soon to come. It says, my sheep hear my voice. Are you one of his sheep today? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I want to finish with a story and then we're going to have some beautiful music. It's a story of a a woman who's driving down the freeway. She was driving actually on the interstate 
And it was dark. It's at night time. She's on her own in the car. And the road is pretty empty. But then she sees the headlights of a truck driving in her rearview mirror. So she's this giant truck. And the truck is gaining on her. And over there in America, it's uh, 55 miles per hour. This was a story from the eastern seaboard of America. She's driving, it's 55 mile an hour. This truck, this you know, big 18-wheeler, coming up behind her, she sees the headlights. The truck pulls out to overtake. And when it gets alongside of her, it puts the brakes on and slides back in behind her. And she thinks, I wonder why he did that. That's a bit weird. And she thinks, well, maybe I'm going too slow. So she puts her foot down on the pedal and she's going 60 miles an hour, 65 miles an hour. But the truck is increasing its speed and it's right behind her. And then she thinks, well, silly me, it's not that I'm going too slow, I'm going too fast. He wants to overtake, I better slow down. So she slows down to 45. But the truck slows down too. And the truck is right behind her. And now she's getting worried because she's a single woman on the road, on her own, and she's got this massive truck bearing down right behind her. She starts to increase speed. She's going 55, 65, 75, 80 miles an hour. And the truck is starting to come up behind her again. She's gotten away, but the truck is increasing speed too. And she's thinking, I've got to get off the freeway. I've got to get off the road. I'm looking for a gas station. She's looking, looking, and eventually she sees a gas station lit up on the side of the road, and she thinks, I know what I'm going to do. As soon as we get close to the exit ramp, I'm just going to pull off quickly, and hopefully he'll go thundering by. And so she waits a time, and then she pulls off the exit ramp, but the truck comes rumbling right behind her off the exit ramp. She screams into the forecourt of the gas station. And the truck comes rumbling in right next to her. She throws open the door, gets out of the car and runs to the office. The truck slams on its brakes, skids into the forecourt of the gas station. The truck driver throws open his door, jumps down from the truck, heads past his truck and instead of going to the office, he goes to her car. And he goes to the door, not the front door, but the back door, and he opens the back door of her car and pulls out a man who was hiding behind her seat. Sometime in the night, she had stopped to get fuel. And while she had stopped and gotten out to pay, this guy had crawled into the seat behind her and was waiting for his opportunity. The truck driver in his elevated position as he came alongside that car could look down and see the scenario. She was running from the wrong one. She was running from the one who was trying to save her. Could it be that humanity is running away from God tonight? And they're running from the only one who can save them. God is chasing us down, not to do us harm, but to save our lives.